So we're continuing our eight essential elements of the gospel series, and we are on the 58th lesson, and we are on element six. And I am, for the sake of time today, not going to review any, because you know I always spend 15 or 20 minutes of the, which is almost half the time I have reviewing, and that doesn't work out so great, because then we don't get the next topic covered. So this is actually the third week on repentance. Repentance is a very, very big biblical word and concept, very misunderstood. It's not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's not about beating yourself up. It's about turning away from self-determination and turning towards seeking, knowing, loving God. And seeking, knowing, loving God means coming under his authority and obeying and following him. So... Um, we, uh, if you go jump all the way down to Roman numeral six, we spent the last two weeks doing defining repentance, uh, and then we gave kind of the Greek definitions of the word repent, the verb, and repentance, the feminine noun. Then we gave eight biblical statements, which I've kind of reduced so I could, you know, continue to fit them on the page. They're not as uh, uh, about three of them had double, double sub-points A and B before, so I consolidated them as best I can. If you have your old notes, you can have a fuller definition. And then we looked at how repentance was the priority. Uh, first thing that was said by John the Baptist, Jesus Christ in his public ministry, and by the apostles when they began to spread the kingdom of God, both in uh, when they were sent out in Luke 9 and 10 and Matthew 10, and in the book of Acts, uh, when, they, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, and of course Pentecost is a kind of a double Jewish ceremony, which includes the, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of First Fruits. And Pentecost fulfilled the meaning of both of those. Uh, the, the, you know, the Feast of, of Weeks celebrates Moses bringing the law down from the Sinai and getting baptized in the Holy Spirit is the ultimate God's writing his law on your heart and on your mind and uh, giving you the inward desire to follow and obey the, the, the law of God and the Lord Jesus Christ who is the, law, the, the very law of God as he said and it gives you the power to do so as well. There, uh, there had been many times that there were people and we've all experienced this even in our Christian life where we might have a desire, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, I, in, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I find another law working in my body. And the power of the Holy Spirit can, can help you break all that in, the, in a progressive sanctification over the course of a lifetime with God. So, um, you know, that was obviously the Apostles' first message. And... Um, uh, was the key. And in fact, if you look at words like uh, contrite, uh, still doing, got to get the right outline here. Look down at the bottom where it says note one, just above point C. And repentance includes all, lots of the words we've talked about already and a couple words we will be talking about. We've been talking about all the words in the Bible that have to do with salvation. And we've been emphasizing they can't just be a theoretical, theological concept in your mind. They have to be your way of life, your experience, what's in your heart. And so we've looked at words like conviction, confession, contrition, uh, repentance, 
And we will be looking at renunciation and restitution, two concepts that are almost never addressed in, uh, the, in the gospel today. So we will be uh, looking at that. I always forget I'm not supposed to drink out of the one with ice. All right, so uh, let's uh, flip over the page. And what today we're going to do is we're just, last week we got into a couple verses in Acts that demonstrated that both in Acts 2 and Acts 3, that the first thing the apostles said was repent, and that repent included all those concepts. And it actually includes faith. You always see, as we're going to see today, you always see repent and believe. Repent and believe. In fact, there is no possibility of faith without repentance. Repentance opens the door to faith. It's the key that unlocks that door. And so that's why Jesus said, if anyone is willing to do my will, he'll know the teaching. Whatever spiritual confusion comes, it comes because we're not willing to do God's will. God's will is always clear. It's just not that clear to our sinful nature <laughs> and our inordinate appetites and desires and so forth, of which we have many. So uh, we're going to just kind of pick up in Acts 5, and we're going to look at the New Testament uh, and continue through the apostolic pr proclamation pattern and teaching through the rest of the New Testament uh, from Acts to Revelation. So, um, in Acts 5, it says, He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as prince and savior to grant, look at the word grant, repentance, to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance is an emphasis, emphasis of the New Testament church message. Uh, now, that brings out number five for one thing. Repentance is a gift of God. Notice that he, he came to grant repentance to Israel. You can't grant repentance to yourself. Remember that Esau sought God with, for repentance with tears, but he only had remorse, which is a word we'll look at in a couple weeks. Maybe next week. We'll see. Um, but notice uh, the following verse in Acts 11. By Acts 11, he says, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, God has granted, given. I always tell people when they're looking at financing college, get all the grants you can, don't do student loans. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, grants you don't have to pay back. Grants you don't earn or deserve, they're just given to you. So God grants repentance to the Gentiles. So notice the progression and the repentance that leads to life. That's number five as well. Now, the whole New Testament is structured according to this pattern. First, God has a message of covenant lawsuit to Israel. And he's saying, Jesus is now, all of the prophets are in Jesus in the sense of metaphorically, not, not literally, that he's standing on the on the uh, the message of Moses in, in completing it, Elijah, Elisha, you know Isaiah, Ezekiel. He is the one prophet from from you know from Abel uh, all through all through to Malachi and so forth, and he is bringing the message of I made a covenant with my people. You have continued and continued and continued to dishonor me and disobey the covenant. And now I am taking the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to a nation producing the fruit of it, which is the church. And that same sorting process goes on in the church, by the way. 
It's why, you know, when they had the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1860s up until now, more all, almost all the modernist churches are fighting for their very life because as you leave the things of God, you leave the blessing of God behind. You can't have God go with your plan. You have to go with his plan. <laughs> Everyone's like, well, I'll just go and do whatever I want to do because, you know, I've got Jesus in my heart and he'll go with me. That's, that doesn't quite work that way. Uh, you have to go with him. So the New Testament always follows a progression of first a, me a message of covenant lawsuit to Israel, then a message of covenant reconciliation to the Gentiles, and then finally, a re reconciliation back to Israel. So we see Matthew having a covenant lawsuit to Israel. Mark is, is kind of a message to both. Luke is a message to both. Uh, he, has a, the, the, he has the same covenant lawsuit that, that Matthew has. However, he has much more about God spreading out to the Gentiles. That's why in Matthew 4, when Jesus comes out of the wilderness, it just records that Jesus you know, says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and begins to make disciples and begins to do miracles, healings, cast out demons. Whereas Luke specifically records his message in his hometown of Nazareth and then the nearby town of Capernaum. And he has a message that says the kingdom's going to be for the Gentiles. And they're so angered by this because they had so much uh, hatred in their heart when they were supposed to be the mediators of God. Uh, presence and God's gl glory and God's law and God's ways and God's reconciliation to the Gentiles, they were prejudiced and hated the Gentiles. And God was tired of it. And he was coming to, to take the kingdom and take their light away and take everything away. And they were going to have God, everything they'd been hoping for, the Lord, Yahweh, Emmanuel in their midst, and Mashiach, Christos in their midst, and they weren't even going to recognize him. And so Jesus uh, forewarns that in his very first speeches in Luke chapter 4, right after he comes out of the wilderness in Capernaum and in Nazareth. So then John takes Jesus' message back to the covenant people of Israel. And then Revelation follows a structure like that. Paul In Romans, Paul talks about the gospel for all mankind. He gives one presentation of the gospel in the first four chapters. He has another presentation in chapters 5 through 8. Then in 9 through 11, he basically tells how the gospel will run its whole course and then uh, Israel will be grafted back into the original tree and be granted repentance and receive Christ. And It won't be that Jesus will return to Israel and temple worship will be restored like the modern evangelicals believe and, because that would be a whole denial of the gospel. That would be blasphemy. In fact, it, I mean, that would be saying... That, uh, that people were saved by works at one time, which they never were, and that they could be saved by works again, and, uh, which they never would be. And so, but they will be, uh, many, many, many born biologically of Abraham and that descendant will, will recognize, and, and that's happened over time, and it's increasing, and will increase until the fullness of the Gentiles that, that they'll recognize that they missed their Messiah and turn to him. So the progression here is first repentance is, grant, is granted to Israel. All through the New Testament, all the letters and, and the book of Acts follow this structure where there's this impending warning to Israel that Jesus said on the Mount Olivet, and you know, when he, you go back and listen to my message, I called Mountains in Matthew, 
But Jesus stood on Mount Olive, facing Mount Zion, Jerusalem, and he did exactly what God commanded them to do under Moses in the Old Testament, where they stood on Mount Gilboa and Mount Ebal, and they pronounced the blessings and the curses over, uh, over each other and shouted them across the mountain. And Jesus is, is, is standing on that experience, and he's basically shouting to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent there. He calls, you know, uh, you know uh, how often I've wanted to gather and so forth. And then he t- begins to tell the disciples that, that not one stone will be set left on another, or, or armies will surround Jerusalem and all that kind of thing, and that it, this will all happen in one generation. So the rest of the New Testament is warning of that impending judgment. It's in every epistle just about. And, uh, and the, the gospel is gradually expanding as it was always meant to. As is, Israel is starting to fulfill the commission she always was in the church because they're beginning to take the message of God's law, God's reconciliation, God's Messiah, God's glory, God's ways, God's word. They're beginning to take that to all the nations. So if uh, Gentiles isn't enough, look at Acts 11. Verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted once again to the Gentiles also the repentance. Oh, I did that one. Acts 17 is what I meant to go on to. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to the people we like somewhere, white people in our middle-class suburb, oh, uh, just the people in my neighborhood, People that have the rights, the same socioeconomic status as me. Oh, wait. That's the modern church. That, he's declaring to all people everywhere um, that we should repent. All people, you know, I diligently looked up the Greek word pos uh, for all, and it means all. Amazing, right? All people, somewhere, everywhere that men should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Uh, we have Rick Widener from the Alliance for Renewal Churches visiting with us today. And uh, th- this verse kind of reminds me of um, a conversation I sat in in our last Alliance for Renewal uh, Churches um, gathering. And, and some of the guys from Brazil, a guy named Tom Padley, a wonderful young young man. <laughs> Uh, under 70 anyway but uh, uh, um, not much older than me so I'm still a young man right in my dreams but uh, you know they were talking about how the, the churches in Brazil uh, were, were, had, were already sending teams to plant churches in five different countries in Africa and you know one of the things if you study the missions movement what we really did uh, what Christians really did is kind of exported our Americanized uh, dispensational, premillennial, uh, spiritual confused gospel to the whole world in the 19th and 20th century. And now, uh, as Christianity is really declining in, London, in England and in the United States, which was the center of all world missions for two centuries less and less and less is that the case 
The center of Christianity is moving to Central America, South America, Africa, the Philippines, you know, South Korea, uh, India, China, and so forth. And, you know, uh, people from the Philippines, people from South Korea, people from various countries in Latin America are sending missionaries to the rest of the world. Because they're doing just what the uh, New Testament tells us to do. That we are to be, you know, the, the biggest indictment there could possibly be on the American church today is that less than 7% of churches have any measurable uh, integration in them. We, are, we have, you know, sacrificed everything in the doctrine of homogeneous church. You know, like we, and in fact, if you read the church growth literature of the late 1970s, the doctrine was if you want to grow a church fast, go to a neighborhood where you can have all people who are the same and reach out to people who are of the same color, same socioeconomic status, same subculture, and so forth, because that's how you'll grow the fastest. And that is, is contrary to everything the entire New Testament is about, and the Old Testament for that matter, too. That's, that is what God judged Israel for. So, uh, moving on to uh, Acts 19.4, Paul uh, comes across these 12 guys in Ephesus, and he says, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he wrongly thinks that they're Christian disciples, Based on, if you read the previous chapter, eight, starting in verse, chapter 18, verse 24, you'll see that Apollos was only familiar with John the Baptist's message, and he had brought that to Ephesus. And then now they had, Priscilla and Aquila had taken him aside and explained to him uh, about Christ and so forth. And now Apollos is taking that message to Corinth. And so he doesn't go back to Ephesus, and he doesn't cross paths with Paul. So Paul comes across these disciples not realizing that they'd only heard about John the Baptist and thinking they're disciples of Christ. So he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Which definitely means that in some way, some measure, you, can, you cannot receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. We totally believe you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe, but we believe you need to receive the Holy Spirit after you believe. And uh, <clears throat> so uh, John baptized with repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That's in Jesus. Notice uh, that gives two things, that, that uh, two of the points. I'm, the the, the uh, bold numbers there are following the eight definitions of repentance. So that demonstrates that repentance is the first emphasis of Scripture in receiving Jesus. These guys had not received Jesus. Paul figures that out when they say, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And then he kind of, to put it in modern English, he says, well, what are you guys into then? <laughs> and then he figures out they've only heard about John the Baptist. And so he begins to tell them about Christ. And so the first thing he tells them about Christ is repent. Because repentance opens the door to experiencing the presence of God. If you don't have much power, you don't have much manifest sense of God's presence, you don't have much flow of God's spirit, then repent. Turn toward God. Hannah likes the message. Way to go, Hannah. So, um, so anyway, so and uh, notice that the repentance, uh, go on to verse 20, uh, Oh, I meant to also bring out how at point four, 
is that repentance is the prerequisite of faith. So they receive Christ, they're water baptized, baptized in the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, prophesy, and so forth. Acts 20, uh, Paul talks about how he solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. So now we're coming full circle. Uh, and, and we see Paul and Rome at the end of Acts testifying mostly to the Jewish people who are coming to him in the prison. And uh, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God. So that's point number eight. Remember that, that the most important point of all the eight points about repentance is that it's not just from, but it's also importantly toward seeking and knowing God. That's the most important. Like people think of repentance as just being sorry for your sins, uh, but you, you, when you turn, you have to turn some direction. And there's no repentance without turning. And the turning is the more important part of the whole equation is turning toward seeking God, loving God, receiving his forgiveness, his grace, we love because he first loved us. You know, as we talked about in an earlier message, let God speak over you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Walk with God in such a way that you learn to hear his voice through the scripture and the Holy Spirit and that you get delivered from all the other voices in your heart and head. You know, that's the process called sanctification and maturing. We all have many voices going on inside of us God wants us to grow in being able to hear his voice. My sheep know my voice, and, and they only follow his voice. And that's really what repentance is. It's turning toward learning to be led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Those who are led by every other kind of spirit and every other kind of attitude and motivation and desire, uh, that's problematic, to say the least. That's why sanctif if, you, if the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you will uh, seek holiness. It will be a major uh, part of your life in your heart. Acts 26.20, he, uh, we, I think we just turned that, did that one. Romans 2.4, uh, we're going to start getting into the epistles now. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So again, what, get, what grants repentance? The kindness of God. You can't grant repentance unto yourself. The kindness of God grants repentance. And that was the difference between Jacob and Esau. Esau only had remorse. And we're going to talk about the difference between remorse and repentance in an upcoming week soon. But Jacob was granted repentance. And in a lot of ways, Jacob was a, a rascal. <laughs> but, uh, but his deception was righteous because he was uh, seeking the blessing of God. A concept moderns have uh, trouble with. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So that's that number five there. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But so the sorrow of the world produces, uh, I lost my place, death. Not a good one. So number, uh, that one has all of them. It you know, shows that it's according to the will of God. It's granted by God. 
It shows repentance is a gift initiated by God. Repentance, it, notice it, it, that it actually kind of brings out the point that it's primarily intellectual and volitional. It's not all about a kind of an emotional sorrow or a selfish sorrow. It's more in the, uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't affect your conscience and pierce your conscience and, and that you don't have feelings about it. But it does mean that it's primarily about the decisions you make and the choices you decide to make out of it. So, um, it shows that repentance is an ongoing foundation because he's giving this message to a Christian church that this is his third letter to. There actually were three Corinthians letters, but the first one is lost to history. So what we call 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and what we call 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, because we don't have, no one knows where 1 Corinthians is, except the Lord. Hopefully you'll get to read it when you get to heaven. <laughs> Looking forward to reading the real 1 Corinthians. Um, and notice that the, the, the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. All repentance brings forth fruit. You haven't repented if you're still doing it. And if there's no progress or no change. Now, I believe there are, those, are certain kinds of sins which sometimes in God's grace, he will just release you from quickly, sometimes early in your Christian life or sometimes years into your Christian life that uh, something will happen where, bam, it, th things are changed and, and, and I hope we've all experienced that. And I think there's others that you'll have to fast and memorize verses and seek prayer from, from other brothers and sisters and it'll be a battle. But if there's real repentance, there really will be fruit, including the fruit of working on it. Like, I always know that no one is ready to repent. Like, you know, people will tell me that, you know, it's become an insidious thing that all, you know, almost all young men today have had some kind of battle with Internet pornography. And I, I always go, well, what are you doing practically to flee youthful lust? Have you put your computer in a room where only where only uh, the brothers can walk in or your parents or somebody, and have you maybe put let them have the password? You know, have you taken sufficient steps to overcome this, or are you just basically saying, nah, I've repented, but I'm not, I haven't really repented. I'm just going to keep doing this sin as normal. You know, are you praying about it? Are you fasting about it? If you have a problem, as, as you all know, I wear my credentials, and I have a struggle with gluttony. And uh, I like food, and food is a great occasion for more food. And funerals are a great occasion for food. And weddings are a great occasion for food. And housewarmings are a great occasion for food. <laughs> and, uh, like, when I'm not feeling that great, I like to eat. And when I'm really rejoicing, I love to eat. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, but, you know, by the grace of God, you know, uh, I, I always am working at it. You know, I've lost thousands of pounds and, and found them again. But uh, like, like Mark Twain's, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it thousands of times. So uh, you, know, you don't know how many times I've given up, you know, the fatty meats on my pizza. Uh, only to realize I don't really like them with vegetables that much. But, uh, or whatever. But, but you know... Uh, frankly, if you look at my family history and stuff, I come from a family where most people in my family weigh 150 to 200 pounds more than I do. And I've never just given into it and let that happen. I'm always 
working with it, battling with it, and so forth. And some sins are just like that. You know, there's an old pastoral joke that pride, money, sex, and gluttony, they're like the poor. They're with you always. <laughs> there's no day that you're not going to have to humble yourself. I hate to tell you that, but uh, there's no day that you're not going to have to uh, bring your finances under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's no day that you're not going to have to bring your appetites for sex, sleep, food, etc. under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's, it's not going to happen. So they'll be with you always. And, but repentance doesn't just go, well, I have this temptation, so just let's live a lifestyle of immorality. So that's, that's huge. Um, and by the way, this, this is a very important verse. Um, Romans 8, 1 says, there's no, now, now therefore no condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the things that when we're talking about hearing the voice of God, you have to give some thought and you have to get some counsel and you have to work on over time learning the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation gets you nowhere. And I think he, Paul is touching on this when he's talking about the sorrow that, of the world that just leads to death. Condemnation is usually vague. It usually beats yourself up because I should have done better. It's, it's not grace-oriented. It's not like saying, I can only do better by the grace of God and, by, and, and reaching out and receiving grace from God. And it's usually not very specific. You can, conviction is usually very specific about, I want you to humble yourself, or I want you to overcome this particular sin that's standing in your way. One of the reasons we stress this whole thing with sexual sin is because all through the Bible, Old Testament knew, if you're living in sexual sin, you'll, you'll not be able to experience the power and presence of God. You'll be cutting, you'll be destroying your relationship with God all the time. You won't be able to walk in his power and his glory. So, in the, you know, Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's, uh, and we live in a culture that's basically said, I want anything you want to do sexually, just do it. Telephone poles, you know, whatever you're into, just do it. And, uh, there, nothing will destroy you faster. So, Second uh, Timothy two twenty five, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Again, repentance is the gift of God. That seems to be a very common one, and that's something we really want to emphasize because grace is a gift. Grace we is not just unmerited favor; it's divine empowerment to be changed into the image of Christ, to be a part of a covenant people that are a city set on a hill, that are a way of life that is bringing the mercies and grace of God to the world around them. That's why we have all the inner city reading programs and inner city mentoring and all the things we do because we are called as Christians to, as Ray Nethery always says, to mediate the presence of God to the world around us. That's what Israel refused to do, and that's what God ultimately judged Israel for. And unfortunately, many churches kind of live there where it's just like what we do inside the church walls with the people we already know, with the people that are like us. And we just can't afford to live there. 
What are you doing to, to uh, minister the presence of God to people around you? And what are we doing together to do that? Now, notice that he says, with gentleness, correcting those. That reminds me, of course, of First uh, Peter 3.15 that says, Set apart, Jesus, sanctify, set apart, Jesus Christ is Lord in your heart. Always being ready to make a defense, apologeo, where we get apologetics for, for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You, you know, you catch more flies with, with honey than you do with, with vinegar. One of the reasons you've got to go deeper with grace, and we really recommend that you listen to my whole grace series a couple times if you haven't, is the more grace that's in you, the more you know God can bring any sort of person to you, and you can relate. You don't have to have been a drug addict to help drug addicts. You don't have to have been a car thief to help car thieves. But what you have to realize is deep down inside, you have to really believe there but by the grace of God go I. You have to really believe that I have the same sin nature you have. And to whatever degree I didn't act out in that direction is because I probably was too busy acting out in other directions. And that even includes a lot of people who grew up in as goody two-shoes and never got in a lot of trouble, but maybe did it for all the wrong reasons. Did it because of the fear of man, or they were just too, too, scared, too afraid to experiment, or whatever the reason they did it. Usually it wasn't for loving and pleasing God. Usually that's something that grows in your life. Now, maybe God granted you to love God at an early age, but you still battle the same sins, pride, money, sex, gluttony. <laughs> and, uh, uh, there's nobody here in this audience that can't relate to those sins. And, and therefore, this gentleness thing is huge. You know, you've got to be able to walk with somebody as they walk out and in, in toward God. Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, which is, uh, please do yourself a favor and, Start in Hebrews 5.14 and go all the way to Hebrews 6.3. When you reread this, I know you take the notes home and reread these and uh, re-listen to the messages and stop, stop the uh, podcast and look up the scriptures and look them up in context and pray over them. I know you all do that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this is in, a, is in a particular context about becoming mature. And what he's doing here is he's actually saying you ought to quit laying these foundations because you ought to have them already. But he's saying, you don't have them already. we got to lay this foundation again. And he lists six foundations of the Christian life in verse 1 and 2. Now, this is not a complete list. of. There's other ways of looking at the foundations of the Christian life. Obviously, that's what we do with our systematic theology class and so forth. But um, he lists, leaving aside the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God and of instruction about washings, which uh, in the Greek is baptizos, baptisms, laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, um, this brings out the point number four, quite that faith is the prerequisite, repentance is the prerequisite of faith. Notice that every verse that we've covered and every verse in the New Testament always has repent before it has belief. Because you can't believe if you don't repent. It's as simple as that. Repentance from dead works would, it, would, it, would mean to cease every uh, performance-based activity to make yourself. Quit, quit putting fig leaves over your loins 
and accept this, the animal skins that, that God gave in Christ. You know, a lot of self-help books, a lot of living your best life now stuff and all this crap that's out there, a lot of it is all about, uh, you know, how you can, through dead works, be, be righteous. And you can't. Not only what, you know, what uh, Reformed people unfortunately call imputed righteousness, but what they also call imparted righteousness, the, the scripture doesn't really separate those. Just like you can't separate the attributes of God except for talking about them conceptually, if you have imputed righteousness, you have to have imparted righteousness. If you don't have imparted righteousness, then you don't have imputed righteousness. Faith without works is dead. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. If there's no fruit coming forth, then there's never been any repentance. If all you do is go to church and take in sermons once a week and get entertained by a great worship band, but you're not becoming a disciple of Jesus yourself, then there's ne never been real repentance. So, again, notice that when he says repentance from dead works, number eight is that it's not only from things, but towards seeking and knowing God. He then says repentance from dead works and faith not about God, but toward God. Now, that's huge because what we've done in America today is we've made faith about God. You meet Christians and they right away start to, to uh, size you up by what you believe it's okay to do or not do. <laughs> You think it's okay if Christians drink beer? Well, let's go get a six-pack and talk it over. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, really, I mean, you know, it, it's all, do you, do you believe in this kind of dispensational premillennialism or the other thing? Or, you know, what's your doctrines about this and that and the other? You know, and honestly, having good theology and, is, and everything is very foundational. That's why Paul's epistles always follow a format of, Good theology from half for half of them, and then it turns to how you should walk them out. Romans one through eleven is good theology. Romans twelve through sixteen is how you walk it out. Ephesians one through three is good theology. Ephesians four five six is how you walk it out. The bone structure that comes from the milk of the word and in the theological framework leads to has to have flesh put on it. Theology must become incarnational. The word of God must become flesh in a community of believers. So. Um, the repentance from dead works must lead to faith toward God. That is, when Paul said, I know him, he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. He says, I know him in whom I have believed. And real faith is a trust-filled walking with the power of his resurrection by the power of his spirit. It's not just intellectual assent to certain doctrinal statements or so forth. Now, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for some to come to repentance. Well, that's the new, different translation. Um, again, there's number three, which is repentance is the first emphasis in receiving Christ, and number five, that God grants it. Uh, notice note number one, because what Peter, if you put Peter in context, He's, he's, when he's talking about for all to come to repentance, he's talking about all to come to conviction. 
uh, all to come to being reproved by the Spirit of God, by the body of Christ, by conviction always means reproof or admonishment. And so it, mean, and it, it means that you've come, you've been arrested. You've said, okay, guilty as charged. And you understand the implications uh, in terms of broken fellowship and the gravity of sin and so forth. And confession, uh, contrition, repentance, you know, a life of reconciliation, a life of restitution. We're going to look at renunciation, but it, in, you know, in advance, it means to disavow, to disown, to have no connectivity, no shared files, if you want to put it in modern terms. Revelation 2, 5, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, I, you know, most pa they tell you in pastoral school that you're not supposed to tell your faults and problems to the church, which I always did that as a dad. I always told my, my kids about all the times I screwed up so they could, you know, like, so they could say, it's okay, you're going to make some mistakes. And I always tell you guys about how I screw up. But this, this verse has been the most convicting verse to me in much of my Christian life, especially the last 20 years or so. Uh, repent... Because Jesus is saying to the Ephesian church, he's saying to the, and Ephesus is, by the way, the, of all the letters of Paul, it's the one written to the most mature church. And he's saying to a mature church, you've left your first love. Repent, and, and, I, and I didn't see this one. When God first started speaking this verse to me about returning to your first love, I didn't see the next part. And he says, do the deeds you did at first. You actually have a barometer to know if you're still walking in your first love, if you're living as zealous as in terms of spiritual disciplines, in terms of love, service, whatever, if you're living according to the deeds you walked in at your most peak great places in God, that's the standard you're to attain to and keep, as many scriptures say. So he goes on, to say, I'll remove your lampstand, which means taken, and that's interesting, because apparently Ephesus didn't repent, because of all the churches Paul planted, Ephesus was one of the first to, to die. It died in the uh, seventh century, um, and really, by in a sense, by an act of God, because what happened was the harbor of Ephesus began to silt over and fill up, and by the seventh century, Ephesus was no longer a port city. It was 100 miles offshore, and, uh, and the city died, and the church was gone. And many of the churches that Paul planted are still with us today. So apparently Jesus did remove their lampstand, because the lampstand is a church in Scripture. Lampstand is where you put lots of individual lamps. So uh, Revelation 3 uh, you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. This is the second one God has mostly spoke to me about. This, this was more in an earlier period of my Christian life. Uh, that's a tough one, man. <laughs> a name that, you know, you can actually have like, oh, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, they're the most on fire, and oh, they help out and they serve and so forth. And that might not necessarily represent where you're at right now. And he's saying, you've got this reputation that you're all on fire and you're alive, but you're not. And then he says, uh, 
Something John would probably like to say about halfway through his sermon sometimes. He says, wake up! <laughs> and strengthen the things that are remain. <laughs> John used to get very frustrated when people fall asleep all the time in his messages. Um, I, I just shoot darts at him. <laughs> all right, so, uh, you know, he says, wake up. Strengthen the things that remain. I, I love how the scripture from Isaiah on, all over the place, it just says, wake up. Wake awake. We, you know, we can, get, we can get lulled to sleep and think we're somewhere we're not. So strengthen the things that remain. Remember, that's an intellectual, volitional word. Remember where you've fallen and, and, re, and return. Uh, and so forth. Now, I just want to point out one last thing, then we're done because we're past time as always. Uh, of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to in, in the first three chapters of Revelation, two of them, he gives kind of a word of encouragement. You're about to be tested. Stay faithful. And all of them, he encourages them about something, but five of them, he tells them to repent. So if you don't think repentance is an ongoing daily foundation of the Christian life, see point number, whatever one that is, uh, number six. You have to repent all the time. Um, God is calling you to repentance, and that's one of the reasons you have to get alone with him all the time. You have to be alone with God every day, and you have to break through to the presence of God, and you have to do what it takes to get in his presence and meditate on his word and hear his voice and let him change you from glory to glory and so forth. If you don't, you're living an unrepentant life, which is the door of the Christian faith. You're, you have a name that you're alive. You're, you may be a good church member, and you may do some good things, but you'll really be dead. Get with God. Amen.